Welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. Jeff Wilson is not your run-of-the-mill fund manager. He is loud, gregarious, and brutally honest at times. All these traits, along with a heavy dose of resilience and determination, have been the cornerstone attributes in growing one of Australia's most respected funds management businesses. Wilson did it the hard way. He decided early on that he wanted to build his funds management business through the listed investment company structure. In 1999, with a briefcase full of WAM capital prospectuses, he marched around Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane talking to anyone who would listen. The most common response was, why would we bother? It will trade at a discount to net asset backing on day one and we will lose money. Investors were wary of the LIC structure. Superstar manager, Platinum, had listed the last LIC on the ASX five years earlier and was now trading at a hefty discount to assets. Given Jeff was an unknown quantity, who could blame investors for the cool response? Unperturbed, Jeff kept knocking on doors until he raised his targeted $20 million. He said at the time, I'm not really worried how much money we raise, we just need a start. Today, WAM Capital has a market value of about $2 billion and is the cornerstone of the Wilson empire. The company has traded at a premium to asset for most of its 22-year life. Meanwhile, Jeff has relentlessly grown his business and today the group has eight listed investment companies and approximately $5.5 billion under management. In addition, Jeff has used the LIC structure to form the fantastically successful Future Generation Group that produces tens of millions of dollars a year for charities dealing with underprivileged children and mental health. I first met Jeff while working as a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald in 1994. I then spent 13 years working with him at Wilson Asset Management. Welcome, Jeff. You eventually smoked those doubters out. Thank you, Matthew. Yes, we did use that phrase a couple of times where we thought we we're going to have to smoke some people out, but yeah, that's right, we did. <laughs> Definitely smoked them out. So I'm going to take you back to start off with to June 1998. Uh-huh. I just left the Sydney Morning Herald. My job at Wilson Asset Management was to book in company visits for you. You had been going for just on six months. You'd started in the January. You're a bit snowed under with the amount of work for an individual. But when it came to the long weekend in June 1998, you said, over the weekend, can you please write me maybe a page or two on where you think we can take the business? So I went off and I think I went to the Gold Coast that weekend and I spent the Monday writing and writing and writing and I got back and on the Tuesday, I said, well, here's what I've got. And you looked at it and said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. This is what I come up with. We're doing this. And at the time, it was all about, I want to do a listed investment company. So you must have known at that time, must have been pretty clear, despite the platinum problems, which was the last LIC, that that was the market for you. Yes, it was. And I had seen some research that James Churnside, who in my broking days was a fund manager, a successful fund manager, it really showed how Morgan Stanley some research they'd done in the US and and it looked at the closed-end funds in the US versus the mutual funds and looked at the performance over a 50-year period. And it showed that the closed-end pool of capital had outperformed the open-ended pool of capital. I think it was like 2.5%. Bit of research. Normally, when I talk to people about sort of 1.5 to 2, because uh, I, I can't find that research anymore. No, you never could. <laughs> You've said it plenty of times, <laughs> but it's elusive. <laughs> That's right. But it was really, it made me realise that the closed, how, how valuable as an investment vehicle, a listed investment company is. And you know, it's, it's a, um, because there are incredible benefits of having a closed end pool of capital. You're not like a, uh, a you know, the mutual funds in the US, like the open-ended pool of capital. You know, when things are going well, 
all the money flows in. When things are going bad, all the money flows out. And so as a manager of an open-ended pool of capital, you're forced to buy at the top of the market and you're forced to sell at the bottom of the market. With a listed investment company, which is a closed-end pool of capital, you're never forced to buy expensive stocks and you're never forced to sell anything. And so you can take a really medium long-term view. And that's that's broadly why those vehicles have performed you know, the open-ended pool of capital over time. I know there's a lot of noise these days about you know, ETFs and the growth of ETFs, and we might talk about that a little later, but people you know, question where the listed investment companies go. And you know, the first one was in, in, the, you know, in the UK, foreign and colonial in 1868. You know, it was put together and they have prospered since then and they will continue to grow and continue to prosper Yeah, for the I would say, through my lifetime. And it was about a year later that you decided to push the button on what became WAM Capital, and we talked about it in the intro with the prospectuses. And I remember very clearly a couple of things happening. One was that you were happy to fly anywhere, walk anywhere, talk to anyone. I think I lost count, but my bet was that we went to Melbourne 12 times to see a meeting. (laughs) That's my best recollection. And- We'd turn up at the one meeting that day to see a small broker. There'd be a few people in the room that you knew, you had good connections. Everyone would be polite mm. and listen. But at the end of the day, someone would say, well, it's probably going to trade to discount. Or, you know, we might buy it after it trades. And we'd walk out of each meeting. Yes. And I'd say, well, that wasn't very <laughs> successful. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. you go, that's all right. Let's get to the next one. So it, was, yeah. it took a lot of resilience because Platinum had buggered the market, to use your terminology back then. It wasn't working. People didn't believe in it. What were you thinking back at that time? Well, it was just, you know, we had a goal. And, I mean, the good thing is in those days, you did have enormous amount of, you know, the listing rules were a lot fairer, I'd say. And, you know, when we lodged that prospectus, you know, we had to raise a minimum of $2.5 million up to a maximum of $20 million. And as you know, the history, uh, it was oversubscribed, and so it was a great result. So it really didn't matter for us in terms of how much we raised. What I thought was important, that we had an opportunity to tell everyone our story and in theory, show them the opportunity and then effectively plough the field. So it's maybe at some other point in time, then they'll think, oh, well, yeah, Matthew and Jeff came to see me and actually... It's interesting what they've been able to achieve or what they've done. And in that first, say, 13-year period, a lot of times I'm sure you you can remember where we had people that called up and would say, look, we've been watching you for the last 10 years. (laughs) And where have they been? (laughs) Like hiding behind the tree or watching us walk up and down Macquarie Street. But to me, it was was just a way of trying to spread the word. I remember, I think it was you, you read a book by the Starbucks founder. I don't know if it was Howard Schultz. And he said in that book that you want to tell people what you do and how you do it and why it's important. And I remember you used that as you walked around and explained why we were doing it and how well we should be able to go for any good. That's right. And I suppose one of the things I've experienced in life, and, and this is you know, before that, you know, when I was you know, breaking and I, was, I remember I was in New York and I was looking for somewhere to rent permanently. So my theory was you know, if I tell a lot, as many people as I can that what I'm looking for, then someone will know someone and it'll come to me. And then I end up finding a fantastic place through a friend of a friend. Yeah. Well, it was one of your other great sayings. You tell enough people something's going to happen and eventually will. <laughs> well, well, I remember again back in breaking when I was at Macintosh. They were the top broker in Australia 
ended up being taken over by Merrill Lynch. But back in those days, I remember talking to John McIntosh and that was his little bit of advice. He said that before they had worked out market shares, that he would always say that they were no, the number one broker. And then he said, eventually everyone just said, you know, you're the number one broker. So <laughs> It's a good piece of marketing. But just to round out on Wham Capital, though, it wasn't, wasn't, I know it was oversubscribed in the end, but it wasn't an easy journey. A couple of recollections I have was one that we had to go out to the printer out at Alexandria and watch them make sure that they printed their prospectuses right. And I remember going out there at seven o'clock on an August morning once, very, very cold and watching it go over and over and over again. But the other thing was we had a little bit of luck. If we reflect on it, that you would tell everyone, as you said, about what we're doing, how we're going to do it. And you had a fortuitous lunch with the now departed Rene Rivkin. And Rene liked what you did. He listened to your story and he was a great supporter of that product in those early days. Interesting comments you're making because I'm I'm not sure if you've caught up, but more recently, I've reconnected with the printer. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, it was in Alexandria right. or Zetland. It was exactly. one of those, yeah, yeah, in yeah, a west of right. Sydney. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's right. We, we were very hands-on you know, to spend a lot of time out there making sure, reading the proofs and you know, making sure everything was correct. He ended up becoming a top 20 shareholder. Eventually, he ended up you know, selling the printing business. He, he was a solid partner. He was obviously listening as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then poor old Rene, that's right. I mean, a man with a, a heart of gold and very sad what ended up happening with him. And yeah, that's right. I obviously was aware of Rene, always thought, yeah, a larger than life character. It was an opportunity to, through various people, was introduced to him and explain what we're doing. And yeah, Rene and his right-hand man in those days, who's Nigel um, been in the funds manager of the game, Nigel Littlewood. That's right. Still speak to Nigel frequently. Yep, I spoke to him earlier today. He's a good man. Before we leave Wham Capital, the other distinct memory I've got was your timing was perfect. Once we'd raised the money or close to raising the money, you went on a holiday for a week or maybe 10 days and every night I'd have to mail out a prospectus. So I'd finish work at five (laughs) and sit at the desk and put the prospectus in an envelope and put a stamp on it and then card it down to the red mailbox bin down the end of the street and I'd I'd go home at six o'clock. That was part of the do things on the smell of an oily rag, but it sticks with me. Then the next step in the building the company was a few years later when it was Wilson Investment. Wilson Investment was almost the opposite to Wham Capital because Wham Capital was a hard slug to get up and going. But once it got going, the performance was, was great and people believed in it very quickly. While Wilson Investment was almost the opposite. It was the second LIC that you did and it was on the back of some tax changes in regards to capital gains for investors. And you went to raise, I can't remember, it might have been $50 million and you were flooded. It was the exact opposite. The money just came through the door. Do you remember that? And it was a bit of a shock at the time. Obviously, people had really listened to your story by that stage. I do remember that. And uh, I mean, reminiscing on the early days of a business is, is fascinating. And I suppose, like everything in life, there's people that believe you can achieve things and there's some people that believe you can't achieve things. And I remember you know, when we were doing Floating Wham Capital, that some you know, very senior investment people would just, I remember sitting in front of them and they just making those comments. You said, look, why would I put money in this little trade at a discount? Which we've been able to deal with that. And then when we were doing you know, Wilson Investments, I think the prospectus yeah, it was $50 million to put aside for WAM Capital or, or our family of shareholders, and the other 50 million was for the public, and so it was 100 million in total. And I remember a very 
I think we were in Brisbane and we we met a, a fellow fund manager and said, yeah, hey, look, you, you know, you'll be lucky to raise 50. And that's right. And when we finished doing the roadshow, the issue still had you know, a month or so to run that we were we had demand for over $100 million. And then we upscaled it to 150 mil. We ended up being oversubscribed at $150 million. So, yeah, that's right. It was a, a total different scenario. And actually, since then, you know, we've got eight listed investment companies, WAM products now, seven that we floated and, and one that we took over the management of. And of them, a number of them have been oversubscribed IPOs. So, and part of that is just making sure in the early days, we, you know, very not, you know, we're novices there. These days, it's making sure that you know, when you're looking to raise an amount of equity, that you make sure that you know, the, the demand is greater than the supply. So that's obviously part of the strategy. Wilson Investment, which today is, is Wham Investment, changed its name. But at the time, it wasn't the quickest of starts out of the blocks from an investment point of view. It was a buy and hold scenario because of the tax changes and it differentiated from Wham Capital, which was able to trade and, and the tax implications weren't the same. But that was a lot harder to achieve that you were looking out many, many years on what stocks to pick. And it didn't get off to a great start. And there were some hairy moments at different times where we traded at a discount and there were a lot of irate shareholders. <laughs> One comes to mind, we're in Brisbane doing a presentation. <laughs> I, can remember, I, can, I can tell, I know what he's doing. He was, there was he one guy dominating the questions from the floor <laughs> and you were, you were taking them. And then you said, well, you've had enough questions. Why, why don't you go outside? And if you've got any other questions, Matthew will take it because we were both doing it. And you continued on and we'll let other people ask questions. So I we went outside and before I knew it, the guy had pinned me to the wall with a finger in the chest. And he was, <laughs> was quite loud and you stopped the presentation and said, are you okay out there, Matthew? And I stuck my head and I said, I think so. We'll see how we go. So it wasn't all that easy. That was a really tough time. And I suppose what I'm trying to get at is resilience. <laughs> we spend a lot of time trying to teach our kids and other people that you've got to be resilient. You've got to make your best out. Things don't always go your way. You've got to bounce back. And the one thing I learned from you was that, and we talked about it a bit earlier, no matter what the situation, you always saw it as an opportunity. You've got to be on the front foot. You can't duck away from it. Where do you think mm. you get that from? Is that a broking trait, something that maybe it was instilled from your parents? Because yeah. you never seem to be overly flustered, even though you might have been inside. It wasn't obvious on the outside. Well, probably talking about you know, Wilson Investment Fund, which ended up becoming WAM Research, and for all those people that were Concerned because it was trading at a 20% odd discount then. Obviously, of our stable, I think it's you know, the last couple of years has been trading at a 40% premium, which is as unbelievable as, as the 20% discount. I suppose one of the good things is I'm one of six children. So, you know, there's, there's a bit of survival bias there. <laughs> and in terms of my father, he was very, yeah, I think he was very laconic in terms of how he operated. He, he was a big believer in anything as possible. And yeah, you know, if if you stick, you know, really, you know, persist and um, you know, stick to it. And and in terms of, I think the that's where the I think the resilience comes from. Yeah, you know, obviously the survival instinct, and also you know, seeing how your parents operate. I I, I suppose that that's the area. And I I do remember in my early days, like my my very first job in the securities industry was in funds management at. You know, Scottish Amicable in Melbourne. And you know, I was there for a couple of years. Then I went to Potter Partners. And I, I was thinking about this 
more recently when I was talking to some you know, younger people, a lot of people, they don't realise how powerful their words are. I think adults, you know, talking to people that are starting off in industry or starting off in life, in business. And I remember Laurie Cox, who was a senior partner then, you know, I think when I got my first bonus, just giving him a bonus, I think it was $5,000, and just saying, hey, look, Jeff, you know, you I was in the research side. You're doing a great job. You know, the world's at your feet. That was his comment. And it sort of helped me pump my chest out and think, oh, well, actually, maybe I'm in the right right industry or I'm doing the right things. And in the early days, if you can get some good positive support, I think it does give you confidence. He didn't have the saying, don't spend it all at once. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? Because that's what I remember when you used to hand out the bonuses. Don't spend it all at once. Your Scottish frugality yeah. came back in. Well, that's right. I think that might have been more dad's. <laughs> <laughs> but it does go to show something because as you've gone on and you've built hmm. the various entities within the WAM group and it's become a much bigger business, you've been able to select very good people to run those over time. And it's important that they do engender that confidence that you're talking about. And these days where you sit above that group, how important is that to what you're doing today, that reinforcement of can do, that things are possible? Well, in terms of for a business, obviously it's trying to select high quality individuals. And to me, that's in the early days, even though I couldn't afford to pay you, (laughs) (laughs) I remember the logic was, I know you're you're looking to get into the Punch management industry, the logic was to pick a high quality individual and your background wasn't in funds management. So to me, it's the quality of the individual is very important. And then also, it's really trying to give people as much support as they can to achieve whatever they want to achieve and really trying to paint the, the picture and, and really help them paint the picture and then help them you know, achieve what they want to achieve. And really, like an organisation is just a function of you know, what the combined people, what they want to achieve as a, as a combined unit, that effectively is an organisation. Yeah, and you've done a great job on that. But if we go way, way back, even before when we talked about June 98, when you started in January 98, Mm. it wasn't necessarily just a funds management business. You'd left stockbroking. You decided that, if my memory serves me correct, three things were important to you. You were going to sit on a few boards. You were going to start a, a small funds management business and run it yourself because you wanted the freedom of not being in, in a bigger business with other people and that you were going to write a book, which which we started. It took a few years to conclude. It was put on the yeah. shelf for a while. And the fourth bit was you're going to spend a fair bit of time with your family. It was a, it was a collection of goals that you'd set yourself. As we sit here today... Yeah. You probably did all those things, but in the meantime, you grew a big business. At that time, did you think that was possible? Oh, back then, no. And I, I remember- Because you were 40 or you were turning 40. It wasn't as if you yeah. were coming out of the gates. Yes. It was the second half of your working life. 100%. And I, I remember that was what I saw is, oh, okay, I've got to 40 now. This is my sort of semi-retirement. Uh, that's right. I, I go, as you said, I go on a couple of boards. What else do I- I'd like to write a book. Thank you, Matthew, for doing it with me and Mr. Hughes, uh, Anthony Hughes, for helping. Yeah, so it was write the book, go on some boards and you know, manage my money with other people's money because my logic was if you're seen as an institution, then you get 
incredible access to companies in terms of information, now going and seeing management, and also when there's brokers raising capital or IPOs. So to me, it was, if I could put my money with some other people's money and you know, have a little boutique pool of capital to manage. And, and then the interesting thing was that sort of grew a little bit faster than we thought. And you know, probably part of it was, you know, you're probably semi-responsible for that because, of course, in terms of our relationship, initially it was, I think, October before you know, January that I started uh, talking to you about, hey, look, one of the things I'd like to do is write a book. And we decided we would write it together. And then when you had thought about getting into the funds management industry, that was probably a little bit, as I mentioned earlier, I think when you started at five or six months in, I think we had four million of funds under management. And- you, you told you told me twenty. <laughs> I twenty committed. It was twenty million <laughs> committed. But in terms of what was paying the bills, it was four million or one percent of that was forty thousand dollars, and and your salary was more than that. Well, it was seventy. <laughs> exactly. And That's I remember right. we were in the middle. My wife and I bought a house, and I'd gone to the bank. And I'd left the newspaper halfway through. I got the loan, the nod, but we hadn't bought the house. We hadn't settled. I took a pay cut. So you you wrote that no, that's okay. You will still earn what he did before. And the bank accepted. You wouldn't get away with that with responsible lending these days. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But so then when you came on, then all of a sudden, yeah, then then it was a bit more of a business because it was, yeah, you know, there was two people. Yeah, you know, there was opportunities. And it was a lot of fun. And I know it was, you know, we talked about it was difficult. It was tough. Um, you know, we had very little funds under management. But it was like the investing part, you know, as I love it, you love it. I think everyone who plays the market loves it. It's a great hobby, you know, which luckily we've been able to do as a as a profession. And as the business continued to grow, Wilson Asset Management, like the plan was never to grow it into anything as large as it is now. And what, what was you saying? If we could get it to, was it 200 or? 200 was, 200 was the figure. I think I think that's what I visualised. I think before I started, I remember someone was saying, it's very important to visualise. What do you want to get to? And so I was visualising if we get to 200 million. Then that was sort of it. And then you said you could take over and I can go and live in the south of France. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You've only lapped that by about 25 times, I think. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We'll come back to the business, but just on investing, which is really important. Yes. I remember I always think that the most important person in your investment career is the one that you work for or work with initially. They probably impart more information than anyone else and leave the biggest mark. When I joined, even though what my primary job was to book those companies in, you spent a lot of time saying, look, there's got cash flow is the key. Cash flow is the key, and you wanted a very iron tight way of calculating the cash flow of each company, and, and you played with that model, and then you taught me that very clearly, and that stuck with me forever. That that's the key. Recently, on a buy hold sell show, one of the guests said, and they were trying to pick ten baggers. Well, how do you identify ten baggers? They said at the time, well, the first thing you don't do is look at the cash flow because that will cloud your view. I don't know if you heard that, but do you think? Cash flow is still important. If you were to teach someone about investing today, do you think it's important or has the world turned that much that it has changed? To me, the more the world changes, the more it stays the same. And I I know at the moment, cash flow mightn't be important. If you're investing in a company, you've got to think of yourself as being a part owner of that business. What business would you like to buy for the long term? You really want to buy, well, if you can have a really good manager, 
a strong cash flow business. You know, obviously, if it can be you know, have a whole lot of assets, that's another benefit. A good return on equity, all these factors. And I know at the moment, cash flow making money mightn't be in vogue. Uh, in theory, it could be you know, it could be revenue growth. Eventually, it'll come back to that. And buying businesses that are good businesses that I mean, we try to buy undervalued growth companies, and and we buy them when we see a catalyst is going to change the valuation. Now that that's still that still is the case. But we might have a whole generation of investors that don't believe that. Do you think their day of reckoning's coming? Do you think there'll be a catalyst that says no, cash is important? Yeah, but the, the will the you know, the market does move significantly in various directions. And this isn't the first time technology companies have gone up significantly. Uh, um, I mean, for the the older people that are listening to this, uh, I remember back in the when the 80s, yeah, you know, there was a company called Vaporcure, you know, which was you know, had this technology, well, supposed technology, a new way of you know of applying paint. And I think the share price went up 10 times. There was Another one, private blood bank, the other share price went up 15 times, 20 times. When we were running, you know, in the early days, you know, we had Davnet and you know, iSecure and you know, Solution 6, old two bags Tyler with Solution 6. <laughs> a number of those companies. And, and eventually, you know, the, the company has to make money. Eventually it does. At the moment, it's sort of based more on the, you know, you're buying something because you think, you know, the, the greater fool theory that a greater fool is going to pay a higher, higher valuation or a higher price. But in, in the end, there's got to be some fundamentals somewhere. Yeah, it was interesting. The only time my kids have ever been interested in what I was doing, they asked me, why do you buy something, Dad, on the share market? I said, I, buy, I try and buy the earnings of the company into the future. That's the value. And they said, don't you just buy it because it's going to go higher? <laughs> Which is true, but how you get to that point is important. And, is that, and I said, I think you guys are talking about the greater fool theory. And they looked at me as if I was a fool because that just didn't make sense to them. Yeah, yeah, but but I think I think that's that's how everyone comes into the stock market. You know, my first job at Scottish Amicable, well, even well before that, you know, the first share I bought was Timor Oil and Gas. You know, I bought it because it was the cheapest stock I could find in the paper. Yeah, you know, and and the only reason I was looking at the paper because my dad at night, when it, after he'd come home from work, would you know, sit down and read this one page which, with a whole lot of numbers on and. Yeah, uh, every night he'd read it and look down the numbers, and I remember asking him, "Yeah, what is this?" And he said, "That's the stock market." And I remember looking down the list, and I found one a, a company called Cox Brothers. It was a Melbourne retailer, and it was trading at one cent. And then oh, a couple of weeks later, I looked again; it was half a cent. Then a couple of weeks later, I looked again, and it was back to one cent. I thought, "Geez, if I bought them at half a cent and it had gone to one cent, I'd make a hundred percent of my money." And then oh, a month or so later, I was looking down the list, and I couldn't find it. And I said, "Look, Dad, you know, where's where's the company gone?" And he said, oh, it's, got, it's gone under. <laughs> and it did. That was in my early days. And then you know, when I was at university, I was, again, talking to Dad about the market. And I was looking down a list of what, what would be cheap. And there was one similar oil and gas trading at $0.10. Cents. So Dad, I said, oh, look, I'd like to buy some. Dad lent me $1,000. I bought $1,000 worth. Went to $0.12. Cents. I sold half. And then I kept the other half. And it went to 30 something cents, And I sold the other half. And I didn't know why it went to thirty cents. It was it ended up it was drilling for oil. I didn't find any, but <laughs> and I didn't really know why it went to twelve cents. Most people come to the stock market thinking like you just you just want to buy the things that go up. They don't understand that when you 
buy a share in a company, you become a part owner of that business. And then to me, that's how you want it, you know, the best way to invest. That's ha- the best way to look at it. Definitely. And how do you, given the current environment that we've just talked about, how do you get your troops at WAM that manage the money? And there's quite a few of them there now doing different jobs, but all managing money. How do you make sure that they stick to that long-term philosophy that what we're actually doing is buying companies that earn money and will grow over time and not get caught up because these guys have got to produce month in month out it's not that easy the market takes you in certain directions and and you can't always fight it i know the pressure is month in month out one of the good things about the closed in pool of capital is you know we don't get inflows or outflows because of our monthly performance so we can take a medium long-term view i know that's you can take that but when you're managing the money, you do feel the pressure. You, know, you feel the, you know, the minute by minute or, or, or the daily pressure. I think it's just in conversation. Like in the end, people have to learn and they have to make their same mistakes. And you know, we know one of the things about investing is you know, experience is, is excellent. And so you know, the more you see and the more mistakes you make and, and, and things you experience, the better you'll become as an investor. So, I mean, the good thing is, you know, we're trying to buy undervalued growth companies and buy them where the catalyst is going to change the valuation. Another pool of our capital or some of the fund's capital is just trading. So, it is a little bit of that greater full theory and it is a little bit of picking up dollar coins on a train track. You know, you just got to make sure you pick enough up before the train hits you. You go into dollar coins, you used to say, if there was a $2 coin in the corner, why wouldn't I pick it up? <laughs> you deflated dollar, it, coins, dollar eh? coins. Things must be tough. Well, maybe the business has been a bit more successful, so I can try to be a bit more humbler. <laughs> <laughs> At least they're coins. You're still picking them up. Yeah. So it's interesting. I left the business more than a decade ago now. And at the time, I think the, the funds under management were that three or 400 million in that range. And there were yes. quite a few vehicles. There was three of your own, a couple of others that were part owned. Today, as you said, there's eight vehicles in total, seven that you've built yourself. There's $5 billion. It's a big well, business. A little, well, I think, I think that might have been that might have been a couple of months ago. I think we're five and a half billion right. now. Keeps going yeah, up. 120,000 shareholders, yeah. It's an amazing story, 120,000 shareholders. And I remember in those days, you virtually knew every shareholder. You loved talking to the shareholders. Whoever rang, you'd say, I'd take that, and you'd bump everyone out of the way and talk to the shareholder, no matter how big or small they were, and you really appreciate it and you always thought, well, I've got to think like the shareholder, what do they want? They want to talk to someone in the business that's in it and who knows what's going on. But it's a different journey. I'm just trying to work out the motivation to keep growing. We we talked about the early days where you said, oh, well, if I do four different things, I'll be happy. Now today, it's, it's much different and you've got a very big business with a lot of people involved and a lot of good people. The motivation and, and, and why you went that far and have come this far? Well, in, in terms of the business, the business grows because of the people that work in it. And it's really, it's not because of me. They're managing the money. Kate's the CEO. There's Oscar, Matt and Katrina running the various pools of capital and more recently, Dania on the alternates you know, with the teams under that. So it's really, we still have the annual strategy meeting. It's really how do the people in the business want to grow the business? I see myself, I'm, I'm just sort of, am I sitting on the boat with them or at the front or the back or the side or, you know, I'm just going on the journey with them. I don't think they would do that. They would say the opposite. They would say that Jeff's created this option for us to do what we'd like to do. 
mm. and the infrastructure's there. And without Jeff, possibly we'd never got to where we are today. So I think from an outsider's point of view, you have played a bigger role than what you're letting on there. But I think mm. just that personal ambition to grow it, because one of the things you always said at shareholder presentations and meetings was, well, I'm here till I'm 80. And I think you've revised that up. Well, once we did the future generation vehicles and then the second one we did was the money goes to youth mental health and all the mental health people said, hey, look, don't retire. So You're talking about the experts are saying don't experts, retire? Yeah, don't retire. So, yes. So I'm 80 with an option to, to infinity <laughs> or to whatever I get to in terms of retirement. But in terms of the business, I tend to work more on the business and you know, what drives me is – I really enjoy it. I mean, investing is a game and you just got to work out what the rules are. And one of the reasons why we've always wanted to go out and meet management of companies is try to get a, you know, to understand what drives them and get a competitive advantage, understanding them. And yeah, to me, working on the business, it's a game. And you know, the interesting thing is, you know, you're saying in terms of you know, growing the business, you know, the last, I think, floated a company probably raised you know, half a billion dollars in the last nine months of, of fresh equity and made four takeovers. And we've, I think we've got another couple up our sleeve <laughs> before the end of the year. So I tend to work more on that. And what drives me, I think, I think it's part of you know, being the third child. My father was a doctor. My mother was a nurse. You know, we're very middle class upbringing in, in Melbourne. My eldest brother was a doctor. Our eldest sister was a nurse. And then and then I actually wanted to be a vet. My marks weren't good enough. And then when I went and did my science degree and then could have gotten into vet science after that, I thought I'd do a bit of work while I'm waiting. And that was after working in a pub for a year. And then after that was at Scottish Amicable, my first job in, which was in the investment department with Don Brinkworth and Chris Walker, who, as you were saying before, you, know, you, you learn a lot from. And, and they were they were big believers in going out and meeting management. This is back in the early 80s. I remember once Chris and myself, we both you know, liked to have a little bit of a gamble on the horses. My mum from New Zealand, she always, around that time, all the New Zealand horses used to win the Melbourne Cup and she used to always bet on the Melbourne Cup and I think that's where it might have come from. But I remember Chris and myself, we decided to do a company visit and we, we drove up to Maryborough you know, in rural Victoria see Maryborough Knitting Mills. We, yeah, we did our, our company visit there and then fortuitously, it just that afternoon happened to be the Maryborough Trots, so we spent the afternoon at the Trots together. But in terms of back on Scottish Amicable, they were really, they were really focused on investing in you know, medium and smaller industrial companies, which are really um, you know, is the area that I've focused on. And also they were very, very big in meeting management and backing management. So you know, to me, they're... Two sort of investment themes that have run through my life. You talked a bit earlier about it's a game. You've mm. always enjoyed it. People are always disarmed by, as I said earlier, gregarious, loud, um, seem to be laughing a lot. But once the game's on, it's win, not at all costs, but it's good to win. And you play pretty hard. And you mentioned before that you've taken over a number of companies and you, you operate in the LIC space. And you've been an aggregator of that space over time as companies have tried their best but not, not necessarily been able to succeed like the WAM group. I'm just trying to work out, you always seem to be thinking about the industry, what is the best way to win, how are the rules changing, but you've never backed away from a confrontation. 
where, where does where does that willingness to butt heads to confront something and have a go at something come from? Yeah, I mean that, that's that's a good question because you always said what while we're playing we'll fight hard on the field. Once we come off, we have a beer. But but a lot of people don't see it that way. They think well we're, <laughs> the game never stops and <laughs> it can't be fun. Yeah. But yeah, you've always yeah, played I, by those rules, but, but you've always, while you're on the field, worked very, very hard to work out what the rules are and what's the best way to get yeah. from A to B. I do enjoy the game, as in you know, the strategy, option A, option B, option C, as an intellectual game of chess, effectively. Yeah. You know, we bid for a company, uh, someone else might have bid, then you know, what, what will they do, what do we do? So the, the scholastical part of, of that, yeah, I think again, it's yeah, you know, maybe it's being one of six children. Yeah, you know, you know, you've got to fight to get your piece of Christmas cake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you rarely missed out. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. And uh, I think it's the it's sport at school and brought up in Melbourne. Played Aussie rules in my younger days. Then I, you know, then I played basketball, and then in senior school, I ended up playing rugby, and like that's. To me, and I you know, played rugby, you know, for a few years after school. Yeah, that's a nice competitive sport. Um, and you enjoyed that. So let, let's look forward. The WAM Group, Wilson Asset Management, under the branding of WAM for all the investment vehicles. Where does it go? You stopped yourself for two hundred million back in <laughs> nineteen ninety eight, and you, you blew through that, and so on. Where does it go from this point? Where you're obviously a much bigger group. There's a lot more people involved. A lot more energy from various sources and a lot of mouths to feed. There's a lot of responsibility in having a big business. A lot of people depend on that business to succeed. Where, where do you go from that point now? Is, is there a lot of room for WAM to keep growing, keep keep doing what it's doing? Well, well isn't, isn't the old saying, if you're not growing, you're actually going backwards? So you know, I, think, I think you mentioned that a number of times you know, when we used to work together. What was it? It was, it was. You have to be growing by. Was it ten percent per annum? Otherwise, you're going back to eight percent. I think that I remember we had that great conversation where we were trading a discount with the Wilson Investment Fund, and you made the very logical conclusion that we buy back the stock because we can buy it at a discount on LIC, and every time we buy a share, it improves the asset backing for everyone else. But we got through one buyback, two buybacks, and we're in the third, and we're still trading at a discount. <laughs> and I think we sat down and we said, "Well, I think what people want to be involved in is something." that grows and shrinking the company is not that exciting, even though it might be the right thing to do. And we both agreed yeah, to that at the time. That's right. And, and I think I think in terms of, you know, with business that people want growth and people enjoy growth and it creates opportunities for people. And whether philosophically that makes sense, you know, because you can argue that isn't isn't one of the problems of the world is the fact that we're we're all growing. And um, and consuming too much, yeah, et cetera. But, but back on the business, you know, as in Wilson Asset Management, it'll keep growing and be moulded by everyone that works there and, and you know, the senior people. And the plan is to keep growing. And the plan is to half-day st- you know, strategy meeting you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I think in our five-year plan that we did two years ago, I think – We've nearly done everything. <laughs> and one of it was to grow the fund to seven and a half billion. And and back then we probably would have been, you know, three billion and we probably would have thought that was a real stretch. But now at five and a half, you know, obviously we're all closer. So one of the things that you you, know, you talked about earlier is I think the investor has always been incredibly important from our perspective. The people that 
you know, we're ma- managing money on behalf of. In the you know, 120,000 investors in the list of investment companies, they are relying on us. And if we can find other investment opportunities, you know, that's incredibly important. I mean, the interesting thing is you know, taking over the management of Blue Sky, when we took over you know, that, the logic about putting our hand in the ring to take over that was when we noticed that someone else had put their hand up to do that, we didn't think that was a, a good deal for shareholders. So you know, we really hadn't given an enormous amount of thought to go in alternative assets. But when we looked at it and we thought we could give a, a lot better deal, and then we thought, well, we've got all these you know, shareholders that, of course, would love access to an, a pool of alternate assets. I know that I know personally I, I wanted access to a pool of alternate assets. And, and how we've grown the business has tended to be, it's always been logical, you know, going from mid to smalls to add large and then to add global and now the sort of alternate assets. So, yeah, I, I would assume that, yeah, whether I'm here or not, you know, up in heaven or down in, yeah, wherever, <laughs> wherever else you go. Well, 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 it's interesting you say that, the cult of the individual remember asking Jerry Harvey, who's now into his 80s, said what happens when the founder is no longer with us, whether not at work or departed the earth. And he said, well, history tells you the businesses start to fail after that. But he said, let's see how it goes. So you obviously believe you've got the right people to keep growing. Well, well, effectively, it's the people. And you know, maybe with, with our business, I've stepped out of managing the money you know, quite a period of time ago, except the only pool of capital I manage these days is the discount asset plays on on LOCs, you know, web strategic value. Yeah, so it's really everyone else is running the business. And uh, in funds management world, there have been brands that continue to prosper. You know, once the people have departed, you mentioned Keir Nielsen you know, earlier. Um, and with Platinum, you know, John Templeton, Franklin Templeton Group from a US global basis. So the entities can continue in funds management. The other examples of them continue to grow and prosper. The philosophy of being a shareholder or understanding as a shareholder has been since day one. I remember, I think you, you might correct me here, but it was Wham Capital that we drafted the prospectus. And then you went in the newspaper and you said, I'm going to put half a million dollars in myself. Then we have to do a supplementary because the lawyer said, why wasn't that in the original prospectus? <laughs> so that caused a bit of grief. So we had to do a yes. supplementary. But the philosophy of being an investor, and you've got quite a bit of money. I don't know. In the early days, it was all, you're always one of the big investors in each fund. Today, you can tell me, but it's 30, 40 odd million dollars. It's a lot of money. How important mm-hmm. it is to sit beside the investor and be part of that process, do you think? Be, be sitting with them. Oh, incredibly important because the hardest thing is, I think, for boards or people on all companies is is really getting a, a really good understanding of what their investors want. And that's why we were talking about earlier. I'm interested to have a good conversation with any of our investors, you know, whether they have $5 million or $10 million invested with us or $1,000 or, or $5,000. And just to just to understand what they see and alignment. Uh, to me, I think it's it's very important. You know, you walk in the other people's shoes. You know, the alignment's important. One of the things that continues to amaze me is that company directors, you know, sit on the boards of very large companies. They don't fully understand that the shareholders own the company. They're only there as directors to serve the shareholders. And yeah, that's to me, that's the. That's the challenge for, I think, all company boards to understand that. 
Definitely. And I can't imagine the 120,000 investors, you know each one of them like you did in the old days. I remember we used to do a roadshow twice a year to what we did Sydney, where we were based, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, and later it was Perth. And we turned up at Brisbane in the early days, I can't remember what year, and there were seven people at the presentation. And I said, dear, well, I don't think we need to come here anymore. And he said, that, you said, that's okay. I'll keep coming. You can stay at home and keep an eye on the fund. <laughs> But in those days, you knew just about everyone. Yes. You knew how they were thinking, knew them by first name. An incredible effort to market that product and keep telling them what you're doing. It must be a lot more difficult today with that 120,000. That's more than a stadium full of people. 100%. That's right. And, and you know, obviously, the organisation has grown significantly since those days. So there's the two of us and three or maybe three of us in total. Yeah, so we've got just a little under 50 people. and. When people buy shares in our company, they do a survey. When they sell shares, they do a survey. So you try to pick up information. When there's something happening, I won't be calling them necessarily. I call the larger shareholders, you know, the top 20 shareholders in each, each of the vehicles. You know, I try to call them six monthly. Occasionally, they try to, I'll speak to the, some of the smaller ones as well, and we're collecting information from them. Or they'll ring, or they'll be concerned about something and want to speak to me directly, and then now, then I'll speak to them. You, you still really have to have a, a good understanding of what the shareholders are thinking and saying and doing. And, you know, we've got, you know, there's eight or nine people in the shareholder engagement, communication. It's a full-time department now. It's quite incredible. Yeah. One thing you do do well is celebrate your wins. You had a 10th birthday, which was in the middle of the GSC. It wouldn't <laughs> feel that great. <laughs> there were a lot of long bases that night. But then you backed up and had a 20th anniversary and it was your much bigger business then. At the time, I'm pretty sure it was this night, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you stood up and made a speech to a fairly big gathering and say, and you quoted you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, which suggested to me you were still fairly hungry to help grow the business. But this was in relation to the future generation yeah. products. And yes. you were saying, maybe I have found what I'm looking for. So yes. you've used your extreme knowledge in the listed investment market to form two LICs that are both trading on the ASX. And you've been able to corral a whole bunch of fund managers, which is an effort itself because you're competitors against them in many ways, <laughs> to manage money for these funds. And then they give their fees effectively to the charities rather than taking them themselves. So they're the ones giving it. And your management company participates in that as well, as well as putting it together. So yeah. everyone's in it together. It's been a great venture. I know you might you might want to give us a bit of a background. I think you got the idea from someone in the UK. But what I really want to know is how, how big can that be and how big a legacy will that be? Because what the charity's like is there's money every year because the fees happen every year. Yes. They don't have to go yes. out and sing for their supper every day of the week trying to raise money once they spend it. Well, first of all, I used to listen to that U2 song all the time, and particularly mainly when in an airplane flying somewhere and yeah, that was you know, one of my favourite U2 songs. Because you're, you're not supposed to find what you're looking for. I think that's the idea. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't found what I was looking for. And with the creation of the future generation vehicles, that can only be possible because of the incredible generosity of you know, the financial services industry, you know, whether it's from the broking side, you know, whether it's the ASX allowing the companies to list on the stock exchange and, and don't charge manual listing fees. Now, whether it's the you know, phenomenal generosity for every fund manager, including 
Matthew yourself with Centennial, managing a pool of capital in your main fund and not charging fees. And that's been, you know, it's really that generosity that's that's allowed 1% to go to youth mental health and children at risk on an annual basis. And now it's up to, I think, the next 12 months, it'll be you know, 11 or $12 million that'll go to you know, those areas. And what's the combined market cap? Is it about 1.1 or 1.2 billion? Yeah, 1.2 billion. Yeah, 1.2 billion being managed. And I think those entities can be, you know, significantly larger. And they can be you know, really as a function of the generosity of the fund managers. Because I think anyone in the funds management world, we're lucky. Now, we've been very fortunate. It has created significant wealth and they're very prepared to give back. So, so if we went to your first guidepost for retirement, when you'll start considering it at 80, as you've said, what, what do you think the future gen could be managing? Is it, is it a $5 billion? Is it a $10 billion business? Because it has got – it's global and it can be big cap in Australia, all cap. So there's a lot of room to move in theory. That's 17 years. Like even just just compounding. That's right. You would have doubled twice. It's got to pay yeah. dividends. Money does come out. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah that's right. It, yeah, yeah, whether it's 5 or $10 billion. That's right. Yeah, it, it could easily be that. And, uh, yeah, if it's – $10 billion, then there's a lot of money going to youth mental health and children at risk. So, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is I haven't listened to that U2 song for at least since the future generation vehicles have been operating. That's good to hear. So we, we'd be remiss not to get a view on the markets, even though you said you don't manage the funds day-to-day except for the for the war fund. Just trying to get a feel for you, – you're traditionally a bear – you're always sceptical of markets <laughs> and, and the, the optimism that people go about the process, and we talked about that a bit earlier. But can you give us a, a view at this point? We're long into a cycle. It had a bit of a hiccup yeah. last year with the virus, but we've recovered at an astronomical rate. To me, it's, it's, it's planned for the worst and hope for the best. It's to realise that you know, no one can pick the bottom of the market and no one can pick the top of the market. And for those that yeah, you know, on the history lesson, you know, looking at 1987, the reason I'm telling this story is just how important it is to be invested in the market. Over time, the market does deliver. It is cyclical. Like early 87, everyone knew the market was expensive. John Spelman, who was one of the great entrepreneurs of his time you know, back then, he, he was short the market because he had these assets and he wanted to protect them. And from the start of 87 to before the crash, now, the 87 crash, where the market fell 20% plus in a day, the Australian market went up 50-odd percent. And after the crash, it kept, in Australia, it kept falling. And I think it fell, I think for the, for the year, you'd actually lost 10%. But the US market, actually, for the year, didn't fall as much, and you'd actually made money. So even though I'm bearish, because I'm, I'm nervous, because we are so long into the cycle, when are interest rates going to start going up? When will, you know, is inflation coming? You know, the most brutal thing is a PE contraction. If interest rates you know, double, then in theory, PE should halve. And so that means you lose half your money. So to me, don't overextend yourself. You're talking about debt there. Don't go and borrow money and throw it at the market. Well, yeah. Don't go and borrow money and throw it at the market, particularly where we are. And, and the fact that over the last you know, year or so, you know, there's been a lot of people playing the market that think that all, all the market does is go up. You know, this is the easiest thing in the world. And I was taught in my early days in broking that you, you make your money 
in your second bull market. And what what was what did that mean? It meant that in your first bull market, whatever you make, you lose. So yeah, it's really you've got to keep playing the market. You've got to be long the market. Don't overextend yourself. Except that you're towards. I would say that we have to be you know, close to some reasonable adjustment. Now the market just can't keep going up. Our last year was the best year in the equity market. You know, to June last year for 34 years in Australia. It tends to those those very strong years tend to be followed by you know, more difficult years. Just quickly on some of the exotics. Obviously, the cryptocurrencies have come to the fore for the last three or four years, but more so in the last year, where a lot of people aren't in the share market. They're trading these currency-like things. You've gotten a view on that? Does that end badly for those people? I think so. Some will make really good money. Some have made good money, but it's just they, they are just very high-risk plays. It's like going to the races and betting on you know, the first or the second. And to me, it's, it is it is high risk. Cox Brothers, was it? Similar to Cox Brothers. <laughs> Cox <laughs> Brothers going from- disappear within a few months. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think, I think like the, the, there'll be some, some will survive, but there'll be, there'll be a number that sort of go by the wayside and- Not too far away. It's too hot for me to handle. Very good. Well, Jeff, I want to say thank you. You've come an awful long way from those days at trying to sell Wham Capital as a product. And I remember one final memory was getting on, and I think it was Impulse, the plane that went broke, oh, yes, or the airline. Yes, yes, and yes. we'd been in Melbourne, and no one had bought a return ticket from Sydney because they didn't know whether it was flying. And we got on the plane. I think it it was just before curfew, and it was us and the staff. <laughs> and we got chauffeur driven back to Sydney, and I think that was the last or next to last ever flight between the Melbourne and Sydney. For I think it was Impulse, if you remember correctly. Yeah, no, 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 no. It was Impulse, and yeah, um, look, I, private first, jet, even in those early days. <laughs> <laughs> but a cheap, a very cheap one, good value. It's always, it's all about value, isn't it? Yeah, right. Riding in first class for not much. That's right, and, and thank you, Matthew, for the the podcast, and and again, thank you for. Now those 13 years yeah. of pain uh, of, of Wilson Asset Management. No, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And, and keep playing the game and keep enjoying it and keep winning. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.